Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. And that's with me, Chris Smith. And me, Eva Higginbotham. Coming up, new insights into who gets severe COVID and what might cause long COVID. The WHO arrive in China to probe for the origins of the pandemic and the snakes that tie themselves into knots to climb trees. And also this week, looking for a new hobby, we are exploring the science of handicrafts, including why knitting boosts well-being, the first textiles from 27,000 years ago, and the project that's knitting human tissue to make repair patches. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, the coronavirus pandemic continues to paralyse countries across the world and the UK has nearly double the number of patients in hospital now compared with last March when the outbreak began and last week saw over 1,500 people die on a single day. The bizarre thing about COVID-19 is that some people get off scot-free while others have a very rough time indeed and symptoms that can persist for months after the virus has been cleared from the body. But could clues as to why this happens and to whom be present in the way the immune system responds to the virus right at the start of the infection? Cambridge University immunologist Ken Smith thinks so. He and his colleagues have been collecting multiple samples from hundreds of COVID patients over the days to weeks as their individual disease syndromes progressed. And in those samples, there's a clear pattern that shows a very different immune response in people who are destined to get severe COVID compared with the people who don't. There are also hints in there of what long COVID might be. We recruited over 200 patients ranging from people with very severe disease on intensive care all the way through to healthcare workers who were screened positive for the virus while feeling perfectly well. And then we followed those patients up and and kept taking samples at intervals out to to three months to understand the evolution of the disease. When you say samples, blood samples? Yes. Patients who entered the studies all had to have a positive swab. So we had viral information at the beginning of the study. And then some patients we gathered that later on. But blood samples were the main thing that we studied. And what were you asking of those blood samples? What were you actually looking for and measuring? The two key things we wanted to explore were how effective was the immune response and the nature and the extent of inflammation that was coinciding with those immune changes. Given that we've got this really broad spectrum of disease symptoms, the syndrome goes from people with no symptoms whatsoever to people who pass away from the infection. Do any of those symptom patterns map onto changes that you see in these blood samples in the patients you studied? Yes. So we saw two key changes. The first thing was that in patients who had very mild disease or indeed no symptoms of disease at all, they had evidence of a more robust 
very early immune response. In contrast, in people who ended up doing badly, even in the very first blood sample we took, which was often within a day or so of them first developing symptoms, there was already evidence of profound abnormalities in immune cell number across a range of different cell types and evidence of systemic inflammation. So they've already had an abnormally inflammatory immune response, even at the very first blood test. So it could be people are predisposed from the outset. And the implications of that is if we're going to act early to prevent this inflammation, we have to act very early. We can't wait and watch. Are those changes present sufficiently early that if someone had their diagnosis in the community, they could be identified as at high risk or at low risk right at the get-go so that the intervention could be different, it could be tailored, and therefore potentially the outcome for them could be changed? That's what we have to aim for. What we don't know is when this inflammation starts. We know that it starts pretty well at the time symptoms develop. It may be that, in fact, the abnormal inflammatory immune response is present even before symptoms develop. And how you detect such people is really, of course, difficult because they don't know they've got the infection yet. And when people get better, do these changes all revert back to normal or are there persistent changes which could account for some of the longer-term symptoms people complain of when they've had coronavirus? We've only looked out to three months at this stage. Our cohort, we are still following, so we will have six-month data very soon. But uh, at three months, the interesting thing is that there's still evidence of marked immune abnormalities in many patients. And those immune abnormalities can be seen even in patients who've got better and gone home. So those things could underpin some of the clinical features of long covid And so what's going to be important for us to do is to follow patients up at later time points to see if they in fact do resolve beyond three months or if they represent an ongoing problem for patients. And what shape do those abnormalities take in the wake of having had the infection previously? So the immune cell abnormalities are largely a reduction in number of a lot of the different white cells in the blood, um, so-called lymphocytes. Many different lymphocyte classes are profoundly reduced and some of those cell numbers remain very low after three months, which could be consistent with or could lead to an inability of good immune responsiveness to, for example, other infections or secondary infections. And that's why we have to see if those recover. Interesting, isn't it? Ken Smith there. So what he's saying is that long COVID might be a decimated immune system that's struggling in the aftermath of a coronavirus infection to cope with a host of what would otherwise be normally much milder viral or bacterial infections. Now, this is, of course, just speculation at this stage. We'll have to wait and see what time tells us. But the results of that study, if you want to read up on it, have just been made available on MedArchive. Now, from predicting the severity of COVID disease in different patients to testing for who has and who hasn't got the infection, testing is critical for controlling the virus. But if someone doesn't have any symptoms, which happens about half of the time, they won't get a test and their infection will be missed. And we know that this is a big problem because even if they have no symptoms, these people can still spread the disease. Now, one strategy is just to test everyone regularly but we only have a limited number of tests that we can reasonably carry out one tactic though might be to solve this by pooling or mixing together the swab samples from everybody in say a household and then you do one test on all of them if you get a negative result that means everybody in that batch is in the clear and if you get a positive result then you only need to go back and test a much smaller group of samples to find out who the infected people really are 
Now, this is what they've been doing at the University of Cambridge over the last academic term. And now they've released a report on how well this can work. Phil Sansom heard from one of the doctors behind it, Ben Warne. Between two to ten students, depending on the size of the pool, would each take a swab and they put it into the same test tube. And that test tube would then go to the laboratory and we'd be able to test all of those students in one go. And that way we were able to test up to 10,000 students with 2,000 tests. How long were you testing students for then? Was it the whole term? So over nine weeks in total, one to two people in each household at the start of term. And then by the end, we were able to test everybody in that household on a weekly basis. Did it pay off? We think that it did. Testing capacity is one of the really key limiting things in terms of COVID-19, the way that it's managed in the UK and indeed internationally. And if you can test five people with one test, that's a really, really, really efficient use of your testing capacity that we were keen to try and optimise. We also heard on the show that some students were so keen to share things, they actually shared a swab. (laughs) You hear stories where people took it to the next level and they're actually sharing swabs. Um, Not the best way of getting tested, possibly an okay way of sharing COVID. How many asymptomatic cases did you end up finding? Over the course of the programme, we found uh, well over 200 cases of asymptomatic COVID-19 infection. And the reason I sort of hesitate slightly when I mention that is because they were asymptomatic at the time that they took their swab. We have gone back and, and interviewed those students again to see if they went on to develop symptoms. And actually, a significant proportion of them did. So they'd be pre-symptomatic when they had the swab. They went on to develop symptoms afterwards. Do you have an idea of how many of the COVID cases you found were asymptomatic? Yeah, and it's a question that we're all trying to answer. And if you look at the published studies, I remember reading the first published study from Wuhan, and they quoted levels of less than 1%. And then there are some more recent studies that quote levels above 90%. There are a number of studies that sort of publish a range in between. It's probably different depending on which population you're looking at. So it's going to be different if you're looking at university students versus school age children. And although I haven't got a number to quote to you today, we are working hard to try and find one. So I think it is a really, really important question to answer. So once you had this knowledge, did it help you tracking down the infections going on spreading through the university? Absolutely. So in the first couple of weeks, we identified a number of transmission events among people in the same household or in the same block of accommodation. It spread between people who share the same course in some cases, or in some cases, the same social activities. I'll give you one specific example, though. In the second week of term, we saw quite a big outbreak in one of our blocks of college accommodation. And if you look at the genetic code, this virus is only found in weeks two and three of term. After that, the accommodation block was locked down, it was closed, and we don't see that virus again later in the term. Although we don't necessarily understand all of the way that the virus is transmitted, We do know that some of the interventions we're putting in place do help to control it. Ben, what about this program really worked and has made you go, yes, I think schools, universities should be doing this when they reopen? Problem with testing is that there's no one size fits all solution to all scenarios. What we have here, though, is a program which, first of all, really utilizes tests to the maximum capacity that we have available to us by using pooling. Secondly, it's been a really successful programme in terms of students participating. So it was an entirely voluntary programme, but more than 80% of the students that were eligible were taking part. It's through this combination of using efficient testing and getting lots and lots of people engaged to participate in it that has the real public health benefit. Should families be getting tests that are then pooled together to save time so that there can be more tests? 
Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I think that certainly there is an option of using pooled testing for households. There are two things which are really important. The first is that they all live together, which means that in the event of a positive test, that's the household of people that you isolate together. And secondly, it makes the logistics a bit easier. You know, the practicality of getting the test delivered to a household of people is straightforward. It's just their postal address. As the WHO famously said at the start of all of this, test, test, test. And that has never been more true than it is now. Thanks very much there to Ben Warren from Addenbrooke's Hospital. Identical twins are supposed to be identical, right? On average, you will find about five mutations of this sort that differ. Is that a problem for the many geneticists who use twins in their studies? What I'm afraid people will take away from it is the idea, well, the twin method's no good because identical twins have differences. Find out on January's edition of Naked Genetics, wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on the programme, snakes that intentionally tie themselves in knots to climb up a slippery pole, and we unpack the science of textiles as far back even as 27,000 years ago. Before that, though, a team of World Health Organization officials have this week arrived in Wuhan to begin their investigation into the origins of the coronavirus pandemic. More than a year after it was first reported, the source of the pandemic still remains disputed. Many accept that while Wuhan seems to have been the first major outbreak, it might not have been the site where the virus first entered us humans. China have just reported their first COVID death in eight months. And the country is suggesting that they may have seen the virus originate outside of China. Others remain very suspicious of China itself, especially after they appeared to be blocking initially, or at least delaying, the entry of the World Health Organization into the country. Now, though, the WHO are in. So how are they going to approach this investigation? Well, with us is Maureen Miller. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist. Maureen, what will they be doing? Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, they arrived on Thursday and they're going to be in quarantine for two weeks. So during the time that they're in quarantine, the hope is that they will have the ability to communicate directly with the scientists who have done research. Because make no mistake, China has not been idle and the government has funded an incredible amount of research The only thing that was shared from all of this research, however, was the genetic sequence of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And because of that, we have been able to develop a vaccine with record speed. Well, yes, quite. And many people argue that, in fact, um, China must have known quite a lot about coronavirus and, and known it existed for quite some time to produce that genome code because they handed that to the World Health Organization right at the beginning of January. But, you know, I've worked on viruses like coronaviruses for a long time. And I know that you don't just go from an outbreak to identifying the cause to having the genome of that virus in, in a matter of days or weeks. It takes a long time to pull all those strands together. So, China maybe perhaps sat on this for longer than people realize? I think there are two issues. One is the spillover of the virus into a human population. When did that happen? And I don't think China can be held responsible for that. It clearly happened in China. We don't know when, we don't know where. It's unlikely to have happened in Wuhan because most scientists agree that it is a bat virus that then went through another animal and infected human beings. So if you're saying that China did share the genome code, but they haven't been terribly helpful since, in fact, they have, in fact, delayed the arrival of the WHO into their country, what 
difference will it make having people on the ground in Wuhan now compared to just asking the Chinese, can you share your learning so far with us? The team that is there of international scientists, most of them have previously worked with Chinese scientists. So they're well known. They have long standing relationships. The Chinese government has blocked Chinese scientists from communicating with the outside world. Once they're face to face, even virtually through internet while they're there, when they have the ability to communicate, that information gets shared. It's clearly monitored. And China has a lot of explaining to do why they didn't allow this to happen earlier. Yes, indeed. But if you're concerned that people can't speak out from within China, is that same fear not going to apply inside China? Because there will be, for want of a better phrase, heavies sitting in on these meetings, won't there, who are going to report straight back what's being said, who's saying it, and there will therefore be a fear factor among those scientists to perhaps not impart as much information as they could. Absolutely. That is a huge concern. And I think this first visit is more political than scientific in terms of developing a collaboration. But China is suffering in public relations because of their inability and unwillingness to do this. There will be some information shared, and some information is better than no information. But there are cracks. Professor Zheng Li Shi, who is a director at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, has already broken ranks by speaking with the BBC about a month ago, saying she very much wanted the uh, scientists to come to Wuhan and speak with her directly. And three or four weeks ago, the Chinese government was not going to let a science team go to Wuhan which is where the virus was discovered. We'll have to leave it there, but this story is going to run and run, isn't it, Maureen? You must come back and tell us more as more emerges from these investigations. That was Maureen Miller. Now we're moving on to some deep physics, where Adam Murphy's been looking into avalanches, but not the ones made of snow. When you think of an avalanche, you probably think of snow. One bit of snow moves, causes a cascade of snow beneath it. But lots of things can avalanche. Nuclear reactions, the bubbles in champagne bottles, even particles of light, photons. So a photon avalanche is a process by which you have a material, and that material is in a certain state such that when it absorbs a single photon, it sets off this chain reaction that ultimately leads to a whole slew of photons coming out the other side. That's P. James Shuck from Columbia University. Now, photon avalanches aren't new. We've seen them for 40 years, but making this process happen has been difficult, only occurring in big bulk materials or at super low temperatures. So what we did here was create a material where we were able to realise this avalanching that's not only doesn't require being in a, a bulk piece of crystal, but actually happens in a little nanoscale packet of material. And it can happen at room temperature. The particles themselves, they're made of something called sodium yttrium fluoride, but which is a ceramic. So you think of them as basically a transparent ceramic. And then what we do is take lanthanide ions that have very interesting optical properties, and we dope them into that material. That all sounds very complicated to put together. So is it really as hard as it looks? No, it's actually a relatively straightforward 
one pot synthesis, as the chemists like to say. It really can be made, you know, at, a, at reasonable temperatures inside someone's lab. It's much simpler than what chemical companies go through, I think, to create gasoline, for example, right? Another strange thing about these particles is that the photons that come out have a higher energy than the one that went in. Now, one of the biggest rules in physics is that you can't just make energy. It has to come from somewhere. So where is all this energy coming from? There's no such thing as a free lunch, after all. No free lunch. That's right. Um, So the way that these actually work is the material works when it's sort of bathed in infrared light. We're taking the material and we're surrounding it in infrared light. So these are sort of low energy photons. But what happens is then when you're sitting in this bath of, of infrared, when your one photon does come into the material and gets absorbed, it puts the material up into this excited state that can then interact with this infrared bath very, very efficiently. And that then leads to a chain reaction of events that leads to lots of photons coming out the other side. And this isn't just nice physics to be put in a folder labelled parlour trick. It's got some potentially huge applications. Like, say you wanted to detect a molecule or a virus that only gives off single bits of photons or single bits of energy. Well, something like this might come in handy. That means it can be a, you know, a very energy efficient way to do things like make an ultra sensitive detector, right? Because what you want in a sensor, right, is you want to detect a small change and you want that small change then to lead to something big that's easily detectable. That's exactly what these do. And there are some weirder applications. The cameras in night vision goggles detect infrared photons or heat, but the silicon in the detector isn't usually very good at detecting infrared. Well, If you were to then, for example, take our material, which happens to respond very nicely in the near-infrared, in fact, it has this very large response, then you could imagine a scenario where you can simply take silicon detectors, you coat it with avalanching nanoparticles, and now you've just made your camera an infrared camera as well as a visible camera. Now that we know how these work, they give us a good clue as to how how to make make new materials. And then these would even further expand the potential applications of it. Exciting stuff there. That was P. James Shuck speaking with Adam Murphy. And that work has just been published in Nature. Well, from crafty materials science and photons to Guam, which if you haven't heard of Guam, that's a small island. It's in the Western Pacific Ocean. And its native bird population has been torn apart in recent years by invasive brown tree snakes that were accidentally introduced to Guam in the 1940s and the 1950s. These snakes readily climb up the island's trees and they do that to feast from birds' nests. And one particularly hard-hit victim is the Micronesian starling. Now, scientists have been trying to protect these birds by putting nesting boxes for them high up on poles, which are then surrounded by smooth baffles, which are kind of like metal covers, to stop the snakes from being able to climb up. But... As it turns out, these particular snakes are slippery customers, as I heard this week from Colorado State University's Julie Savage. We had an outdoor arena where we would put, oh, maybe two to four snakes in during the night. This is a nocturnal snake. And then we had cameras that would record their activity. Snakes couldn't defeat the baffle. But then all of a sudden, one of the snakes wrapped its body around the metal cylinder. This is an eight-inch metal cylinder and formed a loop and then wiggled its way upwards. And you've actually sent me some videos of this. Honestly, it looks sort of like a cartoon. (laughs) It doesn't look like a snake should be able to do this. Were you surprised when you saw this? Oh, we were absolutely amazed. 
Tom, my colleague on the paper, said that he watched the video probably a dozen times. He then sent it to me. I wasn't able to be on island at the time, and I had never seen a snake doing anything like this. So, yes, it appeared we were seeing a very unique form of movement. The snake first forms a loop around the cylinder with its body, and it creates a knot or an, some sort of interlocking region with the tail part of its body and the anterior part of the body towards the head. And this loop, or lasso, which we're calling it, squeezes the cylinder to generate friction and prevent the snake from slipping down this smooth surface. The snake has little bends of its body within the loop of the lasso, which it can then move upward. And it kind of looks like a wave moving along the body, and it gradually shifts these bends upward. How many snakes did you see climb up the pole this way? Was this just a a one-hit wonder super snake, or do you think this is something this species can do in general? We think this species can do it in general. For our studies, we had a total of 15 snakes that we had tested that actually showed this type of locomotion, but undoubtedly more can do this as well. Brown tree snakes evolved in tropical regions where there are smooth bark trees, and it's possible that this form of locomotion helped them scale these sorts of trees and get to resources in those trees. So now you've seen that these snakes can climb up to get to the birds this way. What's next? Well, understanding this lasso locomotion, we can predict circular structures that brown tree snakes couldn't readily climb. So we know now that placing nest boxes for Micronesian starlings on relatively narrow utility poles is not such a smart idea. Uh, Placing them on larger diameter poles would probably be safe. We can also develop other baffles that we think brown tree snakes would have a much more difficult time using lasso locomotion on. For instance, my colleague and I developed a ice cream shaped cone where it's narrower at the bottom and wider at the top. And that makes the snakes have to adjust that loop, that lasso loop as they climb, and that's pretty difficult for them. Well, that is one way to make them hiss off. That was Julie Savage from Colorado State University, and that study was just published in Current Biology. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been covering this week, both the references and transcripts, as well as the audio for the chapters themselves, are available on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now, I'd like to say a very big thank you to those people who've been helping us out by making donations, including those of you who are regular monthly contributors. Believe me, we see all of your names go past every month and your support makes a massive difference. It really does help to keep the show on the road and we're truly grateful. On the other hand, if you're enjoying the programme and you aren't a donor at the moment, but you would like to help us, you can contribute safely and securely at nakedscientist.com slash donate. We've made it really easy. NakedScientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. 
Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. Now, with the coronavirus pandemic keeping us all inside and apart, we've all had to find ways of keeping ourselves busy and entertained inside. And one activity that's proving particularly popular is knitting. Yep, knitting and craft stores are saying they are reporting a surge of new customers who are looking to take up the hobby, including a few famous ones. Oh, I'm totally obsessed with knitting and now I'm onto crochet as well I've now got a crochet advent calendar where each day a new ball of yarn comes out and there's a blog post telling me how to add to the pattern yeah it's my mindfulness it's my way to switch off in the evening to sit there like go around watering my plants sitting down with a cup of tea and knit recognize the voice that was Olympic diver Tom Daly talking to BBC Spotlight about his newfound passion for knitting. And speaking from personal experience, there really is nothing like getting comfy on the sofa with some knitting to relax. I have to confess, I'm another convert and I've actually got my needles here with me in the studio to keep my hands busy as we turn our attention this week to the science of textiles. From 27,000 year old thread made from trees to the art of weaving. First up, though, why are people turning to knitting at the moment? Well, as Tom Daly hinted, it's all about mental health, and many others feel much the same. But is there evidence that a knitting habit and mental well-being do indeed go hand in hand? Well, let's find out. Betson Corkill's the director of Stitch Links. They're an organisation that advocates for the use of knitting to benefit and boost our well-being. So, Betson, are you a knitter? I am. I do knit. I learned when I was seven, but I picked it up again when I started this project because I believe in practicing what I preach. I've just finished a lockdown blanket, actually, that's for a virtual hug for our daughter who's alone in lockdown. It sounds wonderful. Someone, when I was making a programme about a year ago when the coronavirus first began to come in, she promised to knit me a toilet roll holder that had a naked (laughs) scientist on it. I'm still waiting, so I can only presume she's a slow knitter. But how many people are there out there like you, Bets, and how how many fellow knitters have you got? Well, there are millions of people across the globe from all age groups, from different backgrounds and cultures. Our Stitchlings newsletter now goes out to about 92 different countries. And it's certainly become more acceptable and recognised as a tool for improving well-being since I started this work in 2005. And when I first started, I had to call knitting something different. Uh, I had to call it a bilateral rhythmic psychosocial intervention <laughs> to get my foot in the door with clinicians <laughs> and scientists. Was this I to get to get grant money or funding? Is that why you had to use fancy scientific language? Yes, yes. I don't have to do that anymore, though, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very, very encouraging to hear. But what actually is the evidence then that if I indulge in a bit of knitting, that it's going to actually benefit my mental health? Well, the thing that first drew me to it was getting access to hundreds or thousands of letters and stories from knitters and the the large numbers of people from all over the world saying very similar things. So Stitch Links and Cardiff University did a survey and we had over three and a half thousand valid responses from 31 countries in two weeks, which was huge response. And our most significant finding was the more frequently people knit, the happier and calmer they feel. 81% of respondents reported feeling happier, 54% said they felt happy or very happy, and fewer than 1% remained sad, and very excitingly that translated across to people with clinical depression. We also found that texture was twice as significant as colour for affecting mood, and that touching something good makes you feel good. 
And over the last year, the Centre for Integrative Neuroscience and Neurodynamics at Reading University have been carrying out a range of studies. So they carried out a range of validated questionnaires on stress, anxiety, mood and depression. We were then going to go on to do some EEG studies, but of course, COVID intervened there. So we haven't been able to do that. That's looking at brain waves, isn't it, to to yes. find out how people's brain patterns change. But one question yeah. I, I would ask then is, is this cause or effect? Because if I was feeling jittery and unable to settle, I perhaps wouldn't settle to my hobby if it's knitting. Whereas if I was feeling calmer, I was feeling in a better place, I might. And therefore, are you, are you just measuring people's mood with the knitting or is the knitting causing people's mood to improve? From the work I've done, knitting is causing people's mood to improve because we've actually managed to cure anxiety and panic attacks, for example, with knitting, giving people a portable project to carry around with them. And whenever they feel anxiety rising, they take out their knitting and it helps them to, to calm down. And I think that has to do with the rhythmic movement, the rhythmic nature of the movement. As you know, brains are constantly predicting. So our brain likes rhythm because it's predictable. It makes the brain feel safe. So, yes, the work I'm doing certainly pointing to the fact that knitting is helping people to suppress, to lower stress and to remain calm. Do you think it's just knitting? Because I put it to you, I, I might not knit, but I might have another kind of hobby that involves doing something where I immerse myself, I focus on the thing I'm doing, I concentrate. And if I'm concentrating on doing something that I find pleasurable, it might be, say, car mechanics or something, but it's removing me from ruminating on the thing that I was stressing about or worried about or obsessing about and that might help me to distance myself from the cause of anxiety and therefore I would feel better and it wouldn't have to be knitting it could be any kind of hobby I would say you know anything you enjoy doing would have that kind of effect but I think the things that sets knitting apart from other activities are the patterns of movement the rhythmic movement seems to be really important in that and the fact that it's portable as well and We've struggled to find anything else that's portable because then that gives you a tool that you can use anytime, anywhere. So you can use it in bed, for example. You can use it on public transport. A lot of people use it as a self-soothing tool on public transport and otherwise wouldn't be able to use public transport. Sometimes waiting very long times for their public transport to arrive, which can be a cause of anxiety in and of itself, can't it? Who would you recommend then? Who would be a good candidate to take up knitting if they don't knit already to get this sort of relief? Anybody who wants to deal with the challenges of everyday life to decrease stress, improve mood, help with loneliness, pain, addiction, social anxiety, anybody who does screen-based work, for example, 3D tactile activities, really good. So really, it helps you to deal with the challenges of life because it's really important to switch off every day if you want to stay well, particularly at this current moment in time where it can be very stressful. Couldn't agree more. Betson, thank you very much indeed. Good luck with your next knitting project. Betson Corkhill there. I certainly feel more relaxed after I've done my knitting in the evening. But when did our ancestors first begin to master the art of making things from different kinds of materials like this? Let's follow the thread back to the origins of fabric making with textile history expert Margarita Gleber from University College London. The oldest textile that we know of comes from a Czech Republic site of Pavlov and consists of tiny imprints of twined fabric. These are not 
true loom-woven textiles, but handmade twined textiles that existed at the time. And they date to about 27,000 years ago, so quite a long time ago. Do we know what those were made of? We do not know exactly what they were made of because these are imprints, so obviously none of the actual material survives. But uh, we do know that most of the textiles in these early periods were made from plant fibers. And at this point, there were no domesticated plants, uh, such as flax or hemp. And so more than likely, these were made from some sort of wild plant material. A lot of tree bast fibers, such as lime bast or oak bast, were used at the time. So more than likely, it is one of these materials that uh, was used to make these early textiles. How do you make a fibre out of a tree? You have to subject the tree to certain processing techniques. With lime, usually what happens is you cut off a tree of a certain age, depending on whether it's younger or older, it will produce finer or coarser fibers. And then you soak it in water for a long time. And the layers that produce fiber, which effectively is part of the plant that gives it stability, it supports it in its standing, they separate from each other. And then one can peel them off in layers and then separate them into finer strips and use them to produce a thread. Of course, there are also lots of plants, uh, even some grasses, sedges, and materials that often were used to make basketry that could be used effectively in their raw state. So they can be just softened in the hand and used as they are. So they don't require too much processing. If the oldest textiles were mostly made of plant fibers, how long do they last? Because you'd think they would degrade. Uh, yes, indeed, we do. And it all depends on the conditions of preservation. So, for example, everybody's probably familiar with uh, large amounts of textiles that are found in Egypt. Those are made out of linen. And some of them are 5,000 years old. Some of them are even older. The dry climate of Egypt allows preservation of textiles that keeps them in almost perfect condition for very long periods of time. What were the first textiles used for, as far as we know? So some of these earliest ones probably were not used for any kind of practical purpose. The reason we think that is because one of the early indications of the use of fibrous materials are the so-called Venus figurines that come from Paleolithic period. This is the old stone age and they date between 27 to 20,000 years ago. Many of them have decorations that clearly indicate the use of string. And often these are not garments, they are decorations on the head, such as headdress of some sort, or string skirts. Clearly, these are not practical. They more likely had to do with expression of identity and possibly status as well. People have been dressing up forever. Exactly. So say you found a piece of old textile. How do you figure out what it's made of? If it's made of sheep or goat or bits of tree? These days, we have a lot of scientific techniques at our disposal to identify the raw material. Uh, the most common one is microscopy. Common technique these days is scanning electron microscopy, which allows very high magnifications and very high resolution of the surface topography or surface characteristics of the fiber. And each fiber has very particular elements that allow us to identify them. So, for example, animal fibers have scales on their surface, whereas plant fibers such as flax, nettle, or hemp have dislocations or nodes along the surface. 
Cotton fibers look like ribbons, uh, while silk fibers are very, very smooth and long and, and, again, have very particular look when we look at them under the microscope. So seeing as it's been literally tens of thousands of years since we first developed textiles, we've come a long way. Indeed, we have. I think textiles were absolutely fundamental in human development and uh, development of many civilizations as well. When you think about it, the textiles have been uh, the primary material for clothing and a lot of other utilitarian textiles for the last 10,000 years of human existence. It's a technology that predates ceramic or metal technologies. The only technology that's older than that is the the stone technology that goes back uh, millions of years. So in this respect, textiles were among the earliest materials, artificial materials, if you will, that were produced by human beings. When we think of industrial revolution, it was largely driven by desire to improve textile production, to make it faster, to make it more efficient, to increase the quality of uh, particular types of textiles. Even until 100 years ago, people were still producing textiles at home, and that took up incredible amount of time and skill and also materials. Even today, a large amount of world GDP consists of textile production. So I think we still can think of textiles as something that is absolutely fundamental to our human existence. From a humble T-shirt to fundamental to our human existence. I love that. That was Margarita Gleber from University College London. So far, we've heard how knitting during the pandemic is helping people to feel happier and when our ancestors first began to make things. But we have come a long way since then, from laborious handcrafting of textiles to the mass manufacturing that we see today. And in recent years, there does seem to have been a big shift from things being built well that are intended to last a lifetime to fast and loose fashions intended in some cases to only be worn once or twice and then thrown away. But although that might be cheap for us, there is a price that the planet is paying for this. And Kiersi Ninimaki is a professor at Alto University's Department of Design who's been trying to understand this. So Kiersi, you've recently published a paper looking at the environmental consequences of fast fashion. Could you summarise that for me? Yes, global fashion business is a huge industrial sector and the fast fashion has really increased the manufacturing figures. So the last 20 years, the fiber production has doubled. And of course, that also has led to a huge amount of new fashion items, uh, as well as the speeding up the consumption side. So there's a lot of these environmental impacts throughout the whole supply chain. And it's also complex supply chain. So that means that industries is located in different countries and each step in the process might happen in different countries. That means that actually might be that some companies have traveled two times around the globe before they reach the end consumer. So that, of course, causes a lot of environmental impacts. Are there specific points in the supply chain from growing a fibre or collecting a fibre from a sheep, wherever it is that you've got it from, down to making a piece of clothing that someone's going to go buy in a shop? Are there points in that process that are particularly harmful for the environment? And how does that work? Yes, all those processes which uses a lot of water or chemicals, Chemicals are used to dye textiles or printing textiles or doing some kind of finishing processes. All these chemicals and waters and the use of energy are quite harmful. And of course, in those processes also, a lot of waste is produced to soil, water or air. 
And so there are some different materials or different fibres that are grown in different ways, aren't there, between cotton or hemp or, or a polymer, something that's an artificial material. Are there some materials that are better for the environment and some which are worse? Yes, that's actually quite interesting question because uh, each garment has some environmental impact, but they might be different in different fibers. So, for example, with the cotton, cotton so it uses a lot of water and chemicals uh, in the cultivation phase, but also throughout the industrial processes. Polyester, on the other hand, uses a lot of energy, so it has a huge carbon footprint. But nowadays, we also know these kind of problems for the, from the polyester use that actually microplastic in ocean waters. Quite big part of it actually is caused by washing polyester garments. But then these good ones are those plant-based materials, renewable materials, for example, linen and hemp, which actually has quite small environmental impact. And even this carbon footprint is quite small. So it doesn't use so much water when it's cultivated uh, and not so much chemicals. So those kind of fibers actually are quite good from the environmental point of view. But of course, when we talk about fibers, also the use phase is quite critical in that sense that we should always select a fiber which is most suitable for that use content so that it's the common should be durable. So this kind of like a balance is you always have to think when you are selecting different fibres. When we think about all of the different parts of modern life that are contributing to climate change and the destruction of different environments, how big of a problem is the fashion industry within that context? Actually, this is quite interesting point of view because in recent years has been, there has been raised a new discussion in the sustainable fashion field linked to this climate change. Recent studies shows that even eight to ten percent of the global climate change is actually caused by textile and fashion industry. So there's a huge impact from this industrial sector. And what about homemade clothing? I have recently started knitting and I have, although my skills aren't quite there yet, I have grand plans for the jumpers and the scarves and the hats and things that I want to make. What could be said about the environmental impact of making yourself a jumper versus going to any high street shop and buying one? Yes, I think that these do-it-yourself practices are really good ones. Of course, might be that well, those textiles or yarns that you are still using are produced on the other side of the globe, but there are some processes that you could actually avoid by making your commerce yourself. And what is also important that you earn skills, that meaning that you actually understand how the comments are constructed so that it's possible even to repair the comment or even redesign or modify the comment. You've shown that the fashion industry is playing this big role in environmental harm and in in climate change. What do you think we need to do to try and fix this problem? Well, we should try to create a new balance in the fashion sector. Main thing is that we try to slow down the material tribute in the system. That means that we should actually manufacture a little bit less. We should consume a little bit less. We should extend the use time of the garments. So actually those are quite effective ways of, of trying to, to build a new balance in the system. And of course, all the models from coming from this fast fashion might be that those needs also change. Also creating a little bit new business understanding in the fashion sector is really important. And what about for the average person who's trying to reduce their environmental impact? Well, yeah, of course, we have other ways of consuming fashion. So we can buy secondhand, for example. We can swap clothing items or we can rent or lease. Main thing is that we try to extend the use time of the garment. So that's really important. So in that way, also, we can leave it like decrease the buy new stuff and still try to appreciate what we already own. 
Thank you very much. That was Kiersey Ninimaki from Alto University's Department of Design. Well, so far today, we've heard about tree fibres, wool, cotton, linen and other materials that we can use to make fabrics. And we've gone back over 27,000 years in the process. But let's look ahead a bit now. We haven't really considered making things out of our own bodies, have we? And uh, Nicolas Leroux, who's a bioengineer at Inserm in France, has developed a technique where he can make a yarn from human tissue that can be woven, knitted or even braided into new structures, including things like replacement blood vessels. So Nicholas, you better tell us first of all how on earth you make a yarn from human tissue. We take a small skin biopsy and from that we can get cells. And some of these cells are specialized in building the architecture of the body, building the scaffolding of the body. And uh, we take these cells, we put them in the lab, we give them a nice little environment where they're happy and they multiply and they work really hard at building this scaffolding that makes us strong and sturdy. And that's actually referred to as extracellular matrix, isn't it? It's basically the cells secreting around themselves material that they then sit down in, and it gives the tissue strength. Exactly. It's their little house, I like to call it. That's where they live. That's where they're comfortable. And this extracellular matrix, as the name says, it's outside the cells. You may have heard of the most common protein that makes up this extracellular matrix, which is collagen. It's in beauty creams and in uh, shampoos, but it's much more useful in your body as a uh, strength device. It's like wood on your house. And these sheets of collagen-rich extracellular matrix is what we start with. And we take these sheets that the cells nicely lay down at the bottom of the flask where we grow them. And we get these typically 10 by 18 centimeter sheets. And from these nice sheets, we can cut ribbons. And then with the ribbons, we can use them as a yarn. What do they look like when you get this sheet of tissue that you then cut into these strips to use as your starting material? What does it actually look like? Well, it looks a lot like a piece of paper, a little yellowish and wet. It's about the same thickness, and it's probably a little stronger than a piece of paper. And it is much more flexible, though. And what do you then do with it? So you've got this sheet of material. You can cut that into strips, I get that, and that would give you almost individual strands. But how do you use them? So once you have a ribbon or a thread can use the three typical textile assembly approaches, which are weaving, knitting, and braiding. So we use a lot of weaving because it makes very tight constructs. As you know, you can weave a basket with vegetable fibers and be able to put water into it. So that's our favorite for making blood vessels because, of course, being leak-proof is quite important for a blood vessel. We've got lots of materials that are artificial that we can knock out pretty rapidly and they work very well to do replacement parts for blood vessels. For instance, you can replace sections of someone's main body blood vessel, the aorta, this way, can't you? So why do we need to make things your way? What works really best when you have a blocked artery is your own artery to replace it. That's what surgeons do today. They take uh, an artery from a place where it's not critical and they transfer it somewhere else in your body where it is critical. If you run out of vessels, for example, which happens quite often because we don't have a big reserve of vessels that we don't know what to do with, 
the surgeons will put in plastics that are very inert chemically, but the body recognizes them as foreign. And eventually the vessel will fail. It will be obstructed by the reaction of the body. What we want to do is we want to put in the same basic architecture that you find in your own vessels. And we expect the body not to see this as foreign. And in fact, we have had many studies that have shown that it is the fact. It is well accepted by the host. So are you in a stage where you've actually now made blood vessels of the sort of calibre that could be plumbed into someone's heart to bridge a blocked coronary artery, for example? And do they work at the sorts of pressures that you see in the human arterial circuit? Yes, actually, we have made blood vessels by weaving from two to about five millimeter in diameter. And that's exactly the right range for small vascular surgery uh, in different places, including on the heart. And these are actually extremely strong. We probably overdid it from the engineering point of view because they are twice to three times as strong as a native artery. And have you actually tried implanting them to see how a real living body receives them and whether it does indeed accept them? So we are in the process of doing that. The problem here is that we're specializing in making human tissue. Of course, if you put in human tissue into an animal for testing, it will be rejected very aggressively. So what we have been doing for a few years now is trying to make an animal tissue to be able to take this animal tissue and put it into an animal to see what's going to happen. Of course, there's a problem with size, though, isn't there? Because the size of a mouse blood vessel is quite different to the size of a human blood vessel, and therefore what works in one might not work so well in the other. Yes, and in fact, we are not attempting to do a mouse or a rat because it is very, very small. We're using sheep as our model which has vessels that are about the size of human and are widely used to study vascular devices. It's interesting, isn't it? You take the wool off a sheep's back and you can weave that into something interesting and now you can also take (laughs) extracellular matrix from inside the sheep from a skin biopsy and turn that into new blood vessels. Isn't that wonderful? Thanks for joining us to tell us all about the work. That's Nicolas Leroux. And although we've come a very long way from our ancient ancestors crafting things from grasses and tree fibres, the techniques that are being produced by human ingenuity like Nicholas's have uh, many more similarities than differences with some of what our ancients used to do. It's going to be very exciting indeed to see where this technology leads us next. Thanks to our other guests this week as well, Betson Corkill, Margarita Glaber and Kirsi Ninamaki. Finally, we have just got time for question of the week and Katie Haler's been pondering Paul's question about cremation and DNA. This is Paul from New Zealand. I was wondering if it's possible to get DNA out of crematorium ashes. Could you get any information about the person, such as weight or height, from their ashes? Well, Paul, during cremation, the soft tissue of the deceased burns away due to the extremely high heat of the oven and the solid skeleton is desiccated, leaving only fragile bones. These are taken from the cremator and crunched up by a machine. It is this process of breaking the delicate bones up that creates ashes. I spoke to Charmaine Bale, who's worked as a crime scene investigator, worked at a crematorium, and is currently lecturer in crime and investigative studies at Anglia Ruskin University. DNA is damaged by high heat as this breaks the connecting strands of the molecule. 
If you're trying to get DNA from a cremated skeleton, there's a very slim chance of collecting enough remaining DNA. The bone would mainly be brittle calcium and have few places left to protect any tissue suitable for sampling. As for height and weight, when the skeleton is still laying in the oven, then yes, you can see the height of the person. People have different sized bones, so maybe mass could be estimated, but getting an accurate physical size would be tricky as all the muscle and fat will have burnt away. Charmaine explained that an anatomist may be able to determine where the muscles had joined the bones and could possibly comment on someone's build. However, once ground, you could only really tell if the person was big or small by the amount of ashes left. This is why it is very important for a crematorium to follow labelling procedures and to ensure the name tag is followed from the coffin through to the oven to the ash collection area and then adhered to the ashes container. Thank you, Charmaine, for uncovering the answer for us. Next week, we're tackling Stephen's stellar space question. Is it true that if the mass of the Earth were greater, it would render our chemical rockets incapable of reaching orbit and therefore make us a non-spacefaring species with the same level of knowledge as our pre-Sputnik society? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or join in the debate on the forum at thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And if you have a question of your own, you can send that in by email. And there's a simple web form on our site, nakedscientist.com forward slash question. And that's where we must leave it for this week with, of course, grateful thanks to Eva who put the programme together. Be sure to join us next time, though, when we're going to be pondering upon the science of seeing inside the body. Join us on a journey through the past, present and future of medical imaging. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.